Welcome to another episode of the Western Lit Podcast. This is your host, Robbie of the One Name. Hey, welcome to April 1 edition of the podcast on your reading of Beloved. So this is class for today. Um, listen all the way and then remember to take the little exit quiz after you listen to the podcast. So here we go. A couple of questions that came up in the uh, last exit ticket uh, are about Beloved. One question in particular uh, that a couple of people ask is uh, trying to figure out um, why we would never settle on, why, why, why the author might never settle on the identity of Beloved and uh, give us a definitive answer on who she is. And think like an author. Think about what that does if you make that choice, if Beloved remains ambiguous and mysterious till the end. Um, she then has the symbolic potential to become much more much larger than what what she might have been otherwise if she if Toni Morrison decides this is clearly who she is and only who she is and also she symbolizes this one and only one thing now it doesn't make beloved out so that she can mean any old thing the reader wants her to mean beloved symbolizes uh represents something different things for different characters within the novel. And that's the way Toni Morrison is working symbolism. So keep that in mind as you, as you carry on with reading of Beloved. The section that we read um, for today starts immediately after a very short chapter that a couple of you mentioned last time and that Victor even gave his Mr. Potato Head <laughs> artwork on, where Beloved, we get her perspective, her point of view very briefly. And I think really for the first time in the novel... It's uh, um, chapter 14, and it's, it's such an annoying book without the page numbers on every page, but it's like 158, I think. And uh, Beloved says, sitting there holding, or not Beloved says, the novel says, but it is, it's so funny when you, when you do this because you're, you have these shifting points of view. And so, no, it's not Beloved saying this, but we, we, we enter into Beloved's mindset here sitting there holding a small white tooth in the palm of her smooth, smooth hand, cried the way she wanted to when turtles came out of the water, one behind the other right after the blood-red bird disappeared back into the leaves, the way she wanted to when Setha went to him standing in the tub under the stairs. With the tip of her tongue, she touched the salt water and slid into the corner that slid into the corner of her mouth and hoped Denver's arm around her shoulders would keep them from falling apart. Uh, right there, you're inside of Beloved's point of view and perspective, and that doesn't happen that often in the novel. And I think here's one of the first and most obvious shifts to the perspective of Beloved, and it's an interesting move because it sets us up for a series of chapters that come from pretty unique and interesting points of view and perspectives, and I want to talk about that going forward. Yeah, so here we go with uh, your journal for today. The second part of it was invited you to think like an author and ask yourself, why relay the murder, the one that's been looming in the background, the whole, the whole book? Why, 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 why relay the story of the murder this way? Remember, um, there's a lot to think about here. If we begin 
and tell the story, or if we decided to begin and tell the story from the beginning, uh, a chronological tale, you would start, I mean, there's so much memory involved in this story. You would start by, by, um, relaying maybe even the stuff about Setha as a little girl, maybe the stuff about baby Suggs in her younger part of her life, and then have to work chronologically forward. That would be like, you think of how difficult that would be and how, how much would be lost if we didn't have the endless flashing back in memory. And so thinking like an author, that's a really important uh, question we have to ask ourselves. This is something that has happened 18 years ago. And of course it has changed everything. It shapes everything. Paul D has no idea how much it has affected and shaped yet until the end of this section. Um, when until near the end of the section, when um, Stampade finally tells him what's happened, what's happened by showing him the newspaper clipping with the picture that and the words that Paul D can't actually read, and Stampade tells him the story of what happened. So he has no idea what has how this has impacted the present until. Uh, and that this is that this is a thing that this is impacting. All he knows is that she has three children gone. One of them apparently died, but he has no idea what happened, and has no idea why no one comes to the house. No idea until Stampede tells him this, tells him this. So that's that's an interesting thing to recall. So the progression of of the narrative here is uh, the chapter fifteen, actually, right after the beloved stuff. And it begins with Baby Suggs' perspective. So we flash way back into the past and we get a whole bunch of Baby Suggs' story, which is terrific. Um, and a lot of lot of detail is filled in on her, uh, her character. But it's we're inside of Baby Suggs and inside of her memory, her memories of the day that uh, Paul D, Paul D, I'm sorry, that Stamp Paid uh, decided to go and pick a bunch of ripe blackberries and bring them home because he was so he was so happy to see this young girl with four children a brand new baby and the uh uh the the almost crawling other baby right uh and the two sons living there happily with baby Suggs and he 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 just felt he felt compassion and love and he went and out of pure affection for these folks he he decides to to make this really difficult journey to get some blackberries and he brings them back and baby Suggs decides to make a cobbler or a pie or whatever. And pretty soon we have the story of the loaves and fish. It multiplies and grows and becomes a feast for 90 people that baby Suggs tells the story and everybody in the community comes to 124 and they, they throw up a party, a celebration. And this is just less than a month, 28 days, 20 something 20 something days after um after uh um setha's arrival from sweet home to cincinnati and to 124 and this is a this is a really monumental event and a, a monumental event for the whole community and that's the important thing to stress here so we get a lot of this from baby sucks perspective we get a little bit of this chapter briefly from stampede's perspective but um, what happens the day that 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 follows this huge feast is that all those 90 people get angry. They get angry 
And why do they get angry is a really interesting question. Uh, is it, why is this baby sucks? Why is she so blessed? Why, why? Um, and it bothers them and they're, they're, they're angry. And this is maybe the, the reason that no one alerts anyone when they see the ominous sign of these four white people with the look, the righteous look coming, coming into town and no one tips them off. No one lets them know. No one says anything. And this is, uh, this is troubling. And it's one of those things that has influenced the whole community, marks the whole communal, communal memory for all this time now. And I guess that's uh, a thing I want to emphasize because the community ha has a really significant role to play in this story. And um, we should, we should uh, note their journey, the, the, the arc of the, the, the community's um, growth as part of the story as well. So they have committed what is perceived to be an insult and uh, a failure to, for some reason, out of pure jealousy, out of, you know, it's kind of like this. We have graduation. I hope this year there will still be able to be some graduation parties for these high school kids, but big graduation parties, right? And they throw, and, and some people's graduation parties are really huge. And those graduation parties might even be felt to be by some people who attend them as kind of over the top and excessive. And it creates, it can, has the potential to create some jealousy, some anger. Like, I can't believe what, what's, what makes them, that kid so special, whatever. So it's not unusual to think that, um, the attendees and the beneficiaries of this huge party might grow angry with it. So, but this anger influences what happens that, that follows. And what follows is nobody alerts them that very obviously four white people have rolled into town, knowing what they know, knowing that Setha is escaped from slavery in 1855 and, and that white people rolling into town might be a reason for her to hide. Nobody does anything. Okay, so um, then from that chapter, which is a really important chapter, I think, Baby Suggs' perspective, Baby Suggs' memories of that day we get, we shift to chapter 16, which is really striking. I say it's really striking because the shift in point of view here, instead of telling the story from a third-person omniscient point of view of the murder, rather than having... Um, Setha tell the story first. First, we get the story from each of the four horsemen in turn. And what a, what a move it is. So we, we get first on page, uh, this is the beginning of chapter 16, and the page is 174. We, we, we get first the slave catcher's point of view. And you, you see, it, see it here. Three of them dismounted. One stayed in the saddle, his rifle ready, his eyes trained away from the house to the left and to the right. Because likely as not, the fugitive would make a dash for it. You see right there that likely as not, because the you're in the mindset of the slave catcher. So what Morrison has done is she has, she, she creates sympathy f with every character that you enter into their point of view or perspective, right? That's one of the things that the shifting points of view does is it, it 
it pulls at our sympathies for those characters. So she pulls us in and we're now seeing the events unfold from the mindset of the slave catcher. And boy, oh boy, when you, you, uh, you are seeing the events unfold from his perspective right there, likely as not the fugitive would make a dash. Although sometimes you could never tell you'd find them folded up tight somewhere beneath floorboards in a pantry once in a chimney. And you see, see the way he says it? Once, sometimes you could never tell. You'd find them folded up tight somewhere beneath the floorboards. What has she just done there? Like we're in the mindset of the slave catcher. We're thinking like the slave catcher. We're experiencing the events. You are doing it. And whoa, my goodness, that is so powerful if you think about what she's done there. Now, as we go on, we recoil from this, I, I think. But it's such an interesting move for um, Toni Morrison to make. Um, and so from the slave catcher uh, down the page, we get more you. So you had to keep back a pace, leaving the tying to another. Otherwise, you ended up killing what you were paid to bring back alive. Unlike a snake or a bear, a dead N-word could not be skinned for profit and was not worth his own dead weight in coin. Do you see the the thing there? Like, she's what is she doing? She's bringing out the the brutal, the, the brutality of the worldview of the slave catcher. Um, and we, again, I think we recoil from it, but also she's pulled us as readers into his perspective and you become him for a little bit. Now she continues on. Um, she continues on with this point of view and the point of view shifts, of course, from the slave catcher, uh, and by the way, more of that second person, that you, right, is, is on page 175, bottom 174. Um, but uh, you shift to the school teacher then, his point of view on page 175. Inside, two boys bled in the sawdust and dirt at the feet of a nigger woman holding a blood-soaked child to her chest with one hand and an infant by the heels in the other. She did not look at them. She simply swung the baby toward the wall. Missed, the enti missed and tried to connect a second time. When out of nowhere in the ticking time, the men spent staring at what there was to stare at, the old nigger boy, still mewing, ran through the door behind them and snatched the baby from the arc of the mother's swing. Such a brutal moment, but then we shift right there into the school teacher. Right off, it was clear to school teacher, especially that there was nothing there to claim. You see his point of view and perspective is introduced in that sentence. It's really obvious. He has come to claim his property. And right off the bat, when he sees what he sees in the previous paragraph. And by the way, the perspective there, the use of the N-word there, indicates that this whole section is written from the point of view of the white slave-owning class. Um... And, and he says, there's nothing here, no property here to claim. The three, now four, because she'd had the one coming when she cut, pickaninnies, another racist term. They had hoped were alive and well enough to take back to Kentucky and back to raise properly to do the work of Sweet Home. Desperately needed were not. Two were lying open-eyed in sawdust. A third pumped blood down the dress of the main one. The woman school teacher bragged about. The one, he said, made fine ink. Damn good soup. Pressed his collars the way he liked. Besides having at least ten breeding years left. Do you see his concern? But 
now she'd gone wild due to the mishandling of the nephew who'd overbeat her and made her cut and run. School teacher had chastised that nephew, telling him to think, just think, what would his own horse do if you beat it beyond the point of education? Or Chipper, or Samson, suppose you beat the hounds past that the point, that point, that away. Never again could you trust them in the woods or anywhere else. You'd be feeding them, maybe, holding out a piece of rabbit in your hand, and the animal would revert, bite your hand, clean off. So he punished that nephew by not letting him come on the hunt. Made him stay there, feed stock, feed himself, feed lily and ten crops. See how he liked it, see what happened. When you overbeat creatures, God had given you the responsibility of the trouble it was and the loss. The whole lot was lost now. What is school teachers' concern? Right? The loss of property because, not because there was a beating, but because there was an overbeating. And this is really um, striking. She takes us right into that mindset here once again. So that is school teacher. Now, as troubling as school teacher's point of view is, I think it even pales in comparison to um, the nephew, right? The nephew, the one who had nursed her while his brother held her down, didn't know he was shaking. Right in, right in the in between paragraphs on page one seventy six, we shift from school teacher's point of view into the nephew's. Now, this nephew isn't the one who did the beating. This is the one who, for lack of a better term, may I be crude, sucked the milk out of her breast while his, his brother, the other nephew, held her down. Somehow school teacher doesn't seem to think that was as cruel, or maybe he doesn't even believe it happened, but he knows the other nephew beat her, and so he, he punishes him by not allowing him to come on the fun of the, of the, of the hunt for them. This nephew, um, this nephew was allowed to come along, not punished by this. His uncle had warned him against the kind of confusion, but warning didn't seem to be taking. What's she go and do that for? On account of a beating? Hell, he'd been made a million times, and he was white. Once it hurt so bad, it made him so mad, he smashed the wall bucket. Another time, he took it out on Samson. A few tossed rocks was all. But no beating ever made him. I mean, no way could he have... What's she going to do that for? And that is what he asked the sheriff, who was standing there amazed like the rest of them, but not shaking. He was swallowing hard over and over again. What's she want to go and do that for? In a paragraph, Toni Morrison takes us into the mindset of the nephew here. Do you see the shifts? The shifts are amazing. Now think like an author. Think about what you are accomplishing when you choose to do this. From the slave catcher to... The, the, the school teacher, the owner of the plantation owner, or the, the, the guy who's running the plantation now that Mr. Garner is dead, has been dead, the nephew, one who's committed an atrocity earlier that maybe contributes to uh, Seth's state of mind as much as anything, right? This is the, for her, the most atrocious of the atrocities. The choke cherry tree is one thing, but being, having her milk stolen. We give him voice here in a paragraph. What's she going to do that for? And he can't understand. Why would you do that? Um, it's a brilliant move, I think. It is a brilliant, brilliant authorial move to tell the story this way because it 
But first, we're, we're pulled into the perspective of these folks. And I hope if we have any kind of conscience at all, suddenly we recoil. We recoil not just at Setha, who has done what? She has attempted to kill all four of her children because the idea of them returning to Sweet Home is more heinous than their own deaths. And she tries to take their lives. And she succeeds in taking one of them. But what we're recoiling at here, I think, is not so much Setha and what's just taking place. We're recoiling at the mindsets of a slave catcher, of school teacher, and of the nephew. What a move. What a move by, by uh, Toni Morrison. Now, from the nephew, we get kind of the perspective stays all four, all, all, all of the four horsemen here um, down the page in one seven until it, until it shifts to the sheriff. And the sheriff's point of view comes, comes through until we lead up to uh, the end of, in the middle of 178 and the page break. And there's back to baby Suggs. Um, and that's how the chapter unfolds. What an extraordinary way to relay the, how the murder took place the first time. And I don't think it's at all an accident. And you have to pay attention to your reactions to, to, to think like an author then. Why is, why is the author doing this? And what reactions, what responses is she trying to provoke? Setha has done the, an almost unthinkable thing from most people's perspective. If you just describe it, she's attempted to kill her own children and succeeded in killing one. And her mindset has, which she, which gets developed later on, of course, in the conversation between her and Paul D, is that she cannot be. It, it, the trigger is the hat. She sees the hat and she just reacts and races and runs into the woodshed and attempts to try to to, to keep her children safe by taking their lives. They, she cannot imagine them going back. Why? Because of what has been done to her. The, the rape, the robbing, the stealing of the, the, um, the milk and the beating, no way is she going to allow any of her beloved children to go back into that. And her choice is to take their lives. The novel isn't trying to decide whether this is the right thing or the wrong thing to do. Um, definitively, it's getting you to try and empathize with the perspective uh, and a reaction in a momentary reaction and what triggers that reaction. And it's also trying to get you into the mindset here in this section of, of the, the ways of thinking that lead, that leads someone to, to be so brutalized that they would, they would, they would come to think that this, this, there are fates, there are fates worse than death. And one of those fates is my children living their lives at Sweet Home. Of course, in the chapter that follows this, we see the, that Stampede, who plays some role, like he saves the lives of three of the four children by racing in there just in time. Um, and he's, he plays a role here in the community, and his is an important character that I hope you will watch the arc of his character as it unfolds in the remainder of the story. But here he is. And it's a really curious thing because it raises a question. Why would he go and tell Paul D this story and bring the newspaper clipping, learning that Paul D has taken up residence in 124 and pretty sure he doesn't know this about, about Setha. But anyway, Paul, Paul, Paul D that 
interchange between Paul D and Stamp Paid, and Stamp gives him the story, and Paul D says, no way, no, that's not her. That picture, you, I'm telling you, I knew her back then, and that ain't her. That, that ain't her. So Paul D is in utter denial. Now he returns in chapter 18 to have the conversation with Setha. And this is the section in the journal where you were invited to read it very closely and carefully. And so I hope you did that. And I think you did that as I, as I just glanced through the journals. It looks like you're, you're getting a lot of it. Now, one of the things I want to point out, starting on 190, the way that Setha tells the story, what is her physical, like, like so think like, um, think like, think theatrically. What is she doing as she tells the story to him? She is walking in circles, circling and circling. Um, she tells the story. And that's really interesting because the, the, the physical, um, the, the physicality of it, the, what do we call that in, in theater? Anyway, her, um, her blocking or whatever, the, 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 the movement here is exactly what she's done around this event in her life. Her life circles and circles around this event, but it's also um, sh the story has circled and circled around this event, this all-important event in, in the story. Everything is marked from this event, the event, the day, 28 days after she um, uh, had been at, had escaped from Sweet Home when she takes the life of her unnamed child uh, those, those 18 years ago. And... Her account then, circling and circling around it, uh, between her and Paul D, is, 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 is um, marked by her trying to express her motive for why she did. She says this on page 192, I couldn't let her nor any of them live under school teacher. That was out. When she recognized school teacher's hat, something in her just immediately booms. This is not premeditated, of course. This is not carefully thought through. This is, here comes four white people on a horse and a hat I recognize. I, I recognize. And she races. She races into the woodshed and without, without deep reflection or pondering or musing or, even, or any premeditation, she says, no, no way will they go back. And in an instant, she manages to take one of her children's lives injure the others um, and um, only because Paul D gets in there is, is Denver's life spared because Denver's being swung, uh, going to be swung against one of the barn poles and, and, and killed. Um, so think about the, the ethical question that this raises. Setha loves her children. Seth, you have to accept this. This is overpowering. Setha, by her own admission, she deeply loves her children. Slavery does not allow for, does not account for. Everything about it refuses for love to flourish and survive. That Setha loves her children. Um, does that then justify killing the beloved to protect? protect them from a perceived greater evil? That's the question that, that this, this raises. Paul D's reaction is really um, striking. As they have this conversation, and it comes to a kind of a head at the end of 193 at the bottom. Um, and so I just want um, to read actually from 193 uh, to um, 
194. So just hang with me here. I stopped him, she said, staring at the place where the fence used to be. I took and put my babies where they'd be safe. The roaring in Paul D.'s head did not prevent him from hearing the pat she gave to the last word. And it occurred to him that what she wanted for her children was exactly what was missing in 124. Safety. Which was the very first message he got the day he walked through the door. He thought he had made it safe, had gotten rid of the danger, beat the shit out of it, run it off the place and showed it and everybody else the difference between a mule and a plow. And because she had not done it before he got there, her own self, he thought it was because she could not do it. That she lived with 124 in helpless apologetic resignation because she had no choice. That minus husband, sons, mother-in-law, she and her slow-witted daughter had to live there all alone, making do. The prickly, mean-eyed, sweet home girl he knew as Hal's girl was obedient like Holly, shy like Holly, and worked crazy like Holly. He was wrong. This here Setha was new. The ghost in her house didn't bother her for the same reason a room and board witch with new shoes was welcome. This here Setha talked about love like any other woman, talked about baby clothes like any other woman, but what she meant could cleave the bone. This here Setha talked about safety with a handsaw. This here new Setha didn't know where the world stopped and she began. Suddenly he saw what Stamp Paid wanted him to see, more important than what Seth had done was what she claimed. It scared him. Your love is too thick, he said, thinking. That bitch looking at me. She's right over my head, looking down through the floor at me. He's referencing Beloved, right? Remember Beloved? He worries that it has him fixed. Has him, she's a witch. She's, she's uh, some kind of, got some kind of power over her, and she's looking at him, right? Too thick, she said, thinking of the clearing where Baby Suggs commands Knock the pods off horse chestnuts. Love is, or it ain't. Thin love ain't love at all. Yeah, it didn't work, did it? Did it work, he asked. It worked, she said. How? Your boy's gone and you don't know where. One girl dead and the other won't leave the yard. How did it work? They ain't at sweet home. School teacher ain't got them. Maybe there's worse. It ain't my job to know what's worse. It's my job to know what is and to keep them away from what I know is terrible. I did that. What you did was wrong, Setha. I should have gone back there, taken my babies back there. There could have been a way, some other way. What way? You got two feet, Setha, not four, he said. And right then, a force sprang up between them, trackless and quiet. Later, he would wonder what made him say it. The calves of his youth or the conviction that he was being observed through the ceiling. How fast he had moved from his shame to hers, from his cold house secret, straight to her too thick love. You got two feet, not four. That's Paul D's response. And of course, the idea is you're a human being and you treated a human being as if you were an animal. But the challenge, of course, is... Setha and Paul D have been nothing if not treated like they have four for their entire lives. Setha was just treated like she had four feet when she was milked 28 days earlier by 
one of school teachers or by school teachers' nephews. And so uh, this reminder to her here 18 years later in the conversation with Paul D and Setha is, is particularly harsh. Now notice what Paul D says or uh, what he thinks were in his mindset. Later, he would wonder what made him say it. Why does he say this? This is a particularly like, Setha, you know, this ain't right, you know. And, and Setha's still defending. Uh, I, I got them out. I succeeded. Um, of course, she's torn up by the, the angst and regret of what she has done, and it's haunted her for 18 years. Um, and yet she's still saying, but I, I, I did it. I loved them. Paul D says, your love is too thick. She says, that ain't lo- if, if love isn't thick, it's not really love. What a great sort of debate and reflection on like what makes love love. Is Paul D's kind of love, love just a little bit, the only kind of love love you can have and survive? Or do you, if you love, is there, a, is there a love that's too powerful, too thick, too, too uh, I don't know, what, what's the thickest, the perfect word um, here. And I'm not going to try to offer synonyms for it. Is there a too thick love? Um, but anyway, this notice what Paul D's later reflection on his comment, you got two feet, Setha, not four, is. Later he would wonder what made him say it. The calves of his youth. Paul D goes right back to that thing that is incredibly dehumanizing to him now in the aftermath. When he's been treated like cattle, he behaves like cattle um, sometimes. He slips in. It's, you can't treat people like animals and expect them 100% of the time to behave like humans. And Paul D has moments in his past where he, and that he, he's haunted by and he regrets when he behaved animalistically with the calves. Um, later he would wonder what made him say it. The calves of his youth, he remembers that. He knows what it's like to behave, to, to, to be, behave like you have four feet. Or the conviction that he was being observed through the ceiling. Observed through the ceiling by, by beloved. Who makes him feel not like a man. Who makes him feel like he's little more than a slave. Again, a slave to her power. He feels, in both cases, completely unfree. Like a cattle if you will, like four feet, how fast he, or the conviction that he was being observed, how fast he had moved from his shame to hers. Shame. There's shame there. There you go. She spells it out for you. Paul, do you feel shame? And he wonders if this is what motivated him to say this to Setha. And the, the novel indicates right there that she has shame for what she's done. And yet she's trying to cling and justify what she has done. And the novel isn't going to answer whether this is the right thing. It's just what is and what was. And it's tragic. It's utterly tragic. And then the question is, when the tragic, when the worst that can happen happens, how do you go on in the aftermath of that? The novel is postmodern. Aftermath. When the worst that has happened happens, how are you going after that? Is the milk being stolen from her breath, breast the worst that happens that could happen? Is the whole institution of slavery the worst that could happen has happened? 
and you escape from it? How do you go on from that? Or is the worst that happens the day you attempt to kill your children? And the answer to that question is yes. Yes. You wouldn't kill your children if it wasn't for all of that other stuff. The whole system of slavery, the robbing of the milk from your breast, leads to the choice you make in an instant, in a flurry of passion to try to take the lives of your children, to free them from a hell that is called sweet home. And she says it works. But he says, how does it work? And that's a really good question. Has she been free for 18 years? The novel um, really explores that. So um, I hope this helps. That, that line, you got two feet, not four that Paul D. says, is a really important one, and you should remember it. So that's my podcast for today. Take care of yourselves, be well, and uh, carry on with the next uh, assignment um, for next time, which includes some of the most famous chapters, and they're befuddling, but some of the most famous chapters in all of the loved. Read well, focus your attention in on them, and we'll talk some more about those chapters on Friday's class. This has been another episode of the Western Lake Podcast, brought to you by yours truly, Robbie of the One Name.